I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And once again, we have reached that magical time of the month when we like to gather up all the fun articles from the web and do a journal club. Yay! That's the sound of the Travel Medicine podcast airplane flying by. As we're stuck at the airport, just chilling with our journal. And as you so accurately noted, Santosh, these segments did used to be called layovers. And then I stopped calling them that because layovers got to be laid over or overlaid. No, underlaid. Underplayed? Played over. Played out. Overplayed. That's it. Oh, it took a few word associations and tangents to get us there. But as usual, we're going to return back to the subject at hand. (laughs) Well, you know, I had to, like any true scientist, I had to put my words through many experiments and trials. Oh, Uh, hey, that's a pretty good segue. That is because this week's uh, selection of articles all deal with a trial and error theme. Yeah, so the greatest thing about a scientific process is that it's self convincing the world it doesn't exist no <laughs> no that's kaiser so day <laughs> uh, both things that i love dearly by the way but you you can kind of check yourself with science you know if something goes wrong because we want to publish everything what you end up with is peer review and you're going to be found out when Oh, your hypothesis was just wrong. So that's okay. All that means is that we have a significant negative 
and we can go back to the earliest point when something worked and try something new. Let's get started. And our first story deals with a drug that a drug known as Brexanolone, kind of like Brexit, but without all the existential (laughs) panic. And originally, it was marketed by a company called Sage Therapeutics to treat super refractory status epilepticus, which is a very complicated superhero name. Uh, Or just a jargony way of saying when a person starts having a seizure, they don't stop, even if you give adequate therapy, which should make it stop. Status epilepticus, without getting into a lot of details, means that a person is in a prolonged seizure. We, we actually use a cutoff of time. The uh, seizure continues beyond that time, and generally speaking, it's severe. And super refractory status epilepticus is even longer. So you know, most seizures tend to only last minutes. Oh, and super refractory is resistant to medication. So you're trying to, quote unquote, break the seizure by using medication, which should normally stop the brain from seizing. But despite all the things that you're doing, the patient continues to seize. Right. So status epilepticus is usually defined as if you are having continuous or recurring seizures. So maybe your seizure only lasts five minutes and you get five minutes off and then you clock back in and get another five minutes of seizure. So super refractory is a seizure that continues or recurs despite a full day or more of seizure stopping treatment. To date, we have nothing that can really successfully treat this. So Sage Therapeutics came up with this Brexit drug. I'm sorry, Brexanolone. (laughs) And Sage Therapeutics conducted this trial in which they gathered up about 25 different patients who received this study drug. And in the original trial, there were no serious adverse events from the drug. Several of the patients underwent kind of weaning, and a lot of them, almost 77%, met the response endpoint of coming successfully off of these third-line agents and then tapering the brexanolone. So this was used in addition to all the regular anti-seizure meds that are used to try and break a seizure, and it was found in this very small study of 25 people that it had pretty good results. And SAGE just went re- got really excited about this. <laughs> so the big advantage here is that instead of putting the patient into a coma, which is what you normally have to do when all of these drugs fail, is that you could actually treat the seizure itself instead of kind of shutting down all brain activity. This is a really big breakthrough when you can do this. And I guess the next question here, Josh, that Sage uh, Pharmaceuticals tried to address was, can we actually treat seizures long-term? So not actually just breaking the status epilepticus, but actually trying to keep people from seizing the way that you would take an anti-seizure medication like daily in order to prevent seizures from happening. Right, because there are a wide variety of anti-seizure medications, and many of them have side effects that can often be very, very difficult for people who experience any kind of seizure disorder. So a new drug that does not have these side effects would, of course, be not just a a godsend, but also a huge moneymaker. maker. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I think the problem here, Josh, was that the company kind of looked at that second criteria rather than the first. So moving fast can be good if you're really seeking to, you know, help the patient and you, you do kind of all your due diligence. But if you're just chasing the money, a lot of the time you may end up just, you know, running down rabbit holes because you're so taken by the potential of a drug that you're not really taking the time to assess whether it works in the earlier phases. Now, we've talked in the past about the different stages of drug trial phase testing. And unfortunately, I cannot refer you back to the specific episode because we now have over 150 episodes (laughs) and a lot of them are pun-based titles. And I'm sorry, I just do not have that kind of mental capacity anymore. I'm getting older. (laughs) Thanks to everyone for listening. Seriously. But... In short form, phase one studies are usually animal testing and look for is a drug just safe in general. Phase two trials can move to human testing, but really are kept to small studies and often done with randomized, controlled, double blind, or placebos, seeing what is the effect of this versus giving somebody a drug that specifically is designed to do nothing. And phase three is large scale or larger scale human testing that is done before a drug is determined to know the correct dose, the expected side effects, and the anticipated therapeutic effect, and it's released to the public. And a whole moving from phase one to phase three at the best of times, often takes somewhere around 20 to 30 years. Unless it just fails entirely. (laughs) There are times when a medication will work great in a mouse model, or maybe even a pig, which is a little bit closer to, you know, how humans work in terms of their physiology and a lot of times their immunity. But, you know, that, that phase two, getting it into humans, studying to make sure that you're expecting to see the same what we call kinetics, how the drug is distributed throughout the body, where it goes, and then kind of compiling the side effects, and then finally getting to that point of, can I give enough of this medication at a right dose, at a decent schedule, to a human, where they get relief for their whatever disease that is, from the drug while minimizing the side effects. So you're really talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of drugs that are going to meet all of those criteria. And that's why drug companies often spend so much money on research and development and why drug development is often so tightly regulated. But this particular administration, as many Republican administrations are wont to do, uh, are all in the favor of smaller government and less regulation. And one of the big pushes that sounds great on the surface with less regulation is they often tout, oh, well, then these drugs that people need can get to market sooner and things that are experimental and may help very hard to treat conditions, whether it's cancers or muscular or genetic diseases, or in this case, epilepsy can then make it to the consumer that much sooner and people may not have to wait for a condition that previously had no treatment. But by rushing in this case, this company skipped phase two trials entirely because they felt their early stage studies justified rapidly 
jumping ahead to phase three. And unfortunately, when they did phase three, uh, it didn't harm anybody, but it failed in the sense that it didn't outperform a placebo, meaning giving someone nothing with the same protocol or giving them a fake pill with the same protocol that they got the real medication had exactly the same effect. So it turns out that in a small scale, this drug looked great. But once you expanded it out to a model more like the population who'd be getting it, it really did absolutely nothing. Right. So basically, you're just as good trying to stop a seizure with a sugar pill than with this medication in terms of what they were trying to do, which was prevent seizures from happening in a person who has epilepsy. So like a daily epilepsy drug. However, I think, Josh, we can still kind of look forward a little bit to this drug being investigated as a uh, adjunct for stopping status epilepticus. And I believe that they have other uses for this, as this is a neurological drug. They're investigating its use in things like depression as well. Is that correct? That's correct. So once they took a look and saw that the trial for this drug, Brexanolone, to treat epilepsy or refractory epilepsy or super refractory <laughs> status epilepticus <laughs> crashed and burned, they kind of went on to their other areas of research and development with the same drug. And one of the more closely watched upcoming results is going to be from a phase three trial in treating postpartum depression that works very different from epilepsy and affects, one could argue, a much larger portion of the population. And in this case, SAGE did run a successful placebo-controlled phase two trial. So the risks of failure in phase three aren't quite as high, even though the phase two depression trial was also tiny and depression studies are notoriously difficult to judge against placebo because it's such a subjective response. It does look as though there may be you know, some benefit to this drug. You shouldn't give up on it just yet. But the first thing that it was intended for didn't quite work out. So they had to climb back on their horse and try again. <laughs> and I think it's it's really wonderful that it was tried. I'm glad these types of drugs are being developed. And I'm really glad that, uh, you know, even though it hurts whatever industry or whatever you want to call it, peer review process is strong. And that, you know, when a mistake is found or when the drug is not useful, that someone takes a step back and has the integrity to say, you know what, this didn't work. During the scientific process, all of these investigators, including those who are invested in terms of money, stick with their honesty all the time. Now, it's interesting that it led to postpartum depression because that almost helps us segue a little bit to our next story. So here we go to Scotland where scientists are studying menorrhagia or heavy menstrual bleeding. Uh, Josh, and I believe I don't know menorrhagia. Oh, I'm so glad I got to hear your Scottish Hi. accent. It's uter us, Satosh, not uter you. <laughs> Well, the Scots have a great sense of community. I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Um, Apologies to all of our Scottish so listeners. Please call us up with how angry you are and leave voicemails. <laughs> that's, that's right. 
<laughs> we don't have any ulterior motives for those recorded messages. So scientists from the Medical Research Center for Reproductive Health at the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Sorry, have sorry. uncovered... Okay, that's the last one. <laughs> You've killed me with that humor. I'm sorry. I'm just imagining like a bunch of like just these Scotsmen with scientists, but like lab coats and kilts. <laughs> like they're looking through microscopes, but it's actually like a set of bagpipes. <laughs> I can't see through the lens. Angus, did you clear the spit? <laughs> I don't have enough microscopic powers. <laughs> it's Scotty. <laughs> I'm just, oh, just reading this abstract in a Scottish language. Heavy menstrual bleeding is common and debilitating and often requires surgery due to hormonal side effects from medical therapies. <laughs> Researchers looked at the lining of the womb, known as the endometrium. No, you want to take a stab at that one, Santosh? <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. These are brilliant people, and all I can hear is the stupid pipe accent. <laughs> Researchers at the unit helped to identify a key protein that may explain why some women have very heavy bleeding. And if this, in fact, proves to be accurate, that could pave the way for potential treatments that avoid hormones entirely. And that's good because hormones, just like many other things, are not without their own side effects. So they, they looked at the lining of the womb that is the endometrium, and at the risk of mansplaining a little bit, the lining of the womb is shed during menstruation, leaving behind a wound-like surface that has to heal to limit blood loss. Ladies, that's why you have uh, periods. I almost said that's why you have pyramids. I got ahead of myself. Before I become too condescending and obnoxious about this, Santosh, why don't you tell us what they discovered? Essentially what happened is they started out by looking at human women, uh, a cohort of human women who had heavy menstrual bleeding. And they looked at the measurement of a specific factor in the endometrial lining that was shed called HIF-1, um, or it's called uh, hypoxia-inducible factor 1. They found that they actually have decreased endometrial HIF-1-alpha during menstruation and prolonged menstrual bleeding. So what they did was they then moved to a mouse model. That's right. We started <laughs> with women and then zeroed well, in on mice because mouse menstruation is a huge problem. <laughs> God. They have a mouse model of, uh, of menstruation that they can see. And um, it was a little cruel, but this is a hypoxia-induced factor. They, they put the mice under hypoxia, meaning that they stress them with a low-oxygen environment. Low oxygen makes this protein stronger and more prevalent. And that makes... So low oxygen environments actually help the uterus to repair itself Yes, you're absolutely right. So they were able to set up, you know, this hypoxia model. If they took away the hypoxia, then you had less HIF1-alpha, and then you had worse repair of the endometrial lining of the mice that they tested. This kind of linked up pretty well, not only the human model, but also the mouse model, that there is this molecule HIF1-alpha 
which is responsible, perhaps, or correlates with heavy menstrual bleeding. Subsequent to that, they actually even, they knocked out this protein. So they couldn't knock it out entirely, but they knocked out one copy of HIF1-alpha in mice. So they they created a gene deletion. Um, and when the mouse was kind of lacking expression of HIF1A, meaning they couldn't make it in, at the right levels at all, then they also had delay in endometrial repair. So this kind of tied everything together, saying that HIF1 was really important for endometrial repair, at least in the mouse model. Looking at this and, and looking at the human side a little bit kind of in a tissue culture, we may be able to move forward and look at targeting HIF1-alpha with medication to actually reduce heavy menstrual bleeding without using a ton of hormones like progesterone and estrogen in order to do the same job. Which is fantastic because heavy menstrual bleeding tends to be one of the most common reasons that women visit the gynecologist. Uh, about 20 to 30% of premenopausal women. Even more impressive is that preliminary results from these mouse studies suggest that there is no interference with fertility when treating with this Sweet. protein. So yeah, it, when you're using birth control, you know, you're using progesterone and you're using estrogen uh, in order to uh, treat heavy menstrual bleeding, well, you're, you know, you're on birth control. <laughs> so that means that during that period of time, your potential mom really can't have babies. So you're stuck in this kind of horrible thing of like, well, do I have heavy menstrual bleeding and try to get pregnant? Or do I just take away my ability to have children while I'm on this pill and at least not have heavy menstrual bleeding. And that's a horrible choice. Hopefully this will lead to avoidance of having to make that choice. And that brings us to our next study, which also is something that uh, people have been kind of chasing mm -hmm. for a long time, is a vaccine for type 1 diabetes is going to start human Yay. trials in 2018. And I think uh, that sounds a little bit more promising than it actually is right now. <laughs> Are you saying that my headline is in error? Uh, how about we start with what the vaccine is actually against and go from there? Okay, so it's a prototype vaccine that may be able to prevent or delay induction of type 1 diabetes in children. So it's not a cure. If you already have developed diabetes, you cannot take this vaccine and have it reversed, and it will not eliminate the disease altogether. Um, but it is expected to provide immunity against a virus that has been closely linked and suspected of triggering the body's defenses into attacking itself. So potentially creating the situations to allow the disease to develop. This was done by the University mm -hmm. of Tampere in Finland, and they've previously done research that has provided pretty solid evidence that links a type of virus called Coxsackie virus with an autoimmune reaction that makes the body destroy its right. own cells so in the pancreas. Let's uh, break down diabetes real quick. Diabetes is divided up uh, into type 1 and type 2 in modern nomenclature. Type 1 used to be called insulin-dependent, 
And type 2 used to be called non-insulin dependent, but that has been broken up because it's confusing because those things aren't true anymore. Type 1 diabetes essentially is a disease where the immune system attacks the beta cells of the pancreas, that's the glucose producing cells, and destroys them. Generally speaking, the vast majority of patients suffer this disease in childhood. So this autoimmune reaction happens when they're very, very young. They destroy their beta cells throughout their childhood and usually somewhere around school age. So when they're six, seven, eight years old, their beta cell population gets to kind of a critical level and they'll have like a real diabetic episode. Right around that time, the body will not ever make enough insulin because the cells are just gone from the pancreas. So they rely on insulin injections in order to kind of what the rest of us can eat without even thinking about it. Now, this vaccine is kind of interesting because you generally don't want to give this to everybody. You want to target people who are at risk for developing type 1 diabetes, meaning that they, they're they at risk for destroying their own pancreatic beta cells. But we actually don't know who those kids are. Like we don't know ahead of time. We just know when they present to us with diabetes in the hospital. To put some of this into perspective you know, we're not talking about necessarily a huge group. In fact, even the researchers, and I'm going to horribly mispronounce this name because I don't even know what Finnish <laughs> is supposed to sound like, but the name is too yeah. much fun just spelled out. Uh, so virologist <laughs> Hekikyoti, uh, H-E-I-K-K-I-H-Y-O-T-Y, yeah, it sounds like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, so Hekikyoti uh, notes that you know, from the generated data, less than 5% of children infected with this Coxsackie virus go on to develop type 1 diabetes. And that was in the original study, which doesn't seem like a lot. But keep in mind, if every year, hundreds of infants around the globe develop type 1 diabetes, and even if 5% of those are from this Coxsackie virus, and we give a vaccine that prevents it, that's a whole group of people that may never have to deal with what is a right. life-altering so, condition. Uh, Coxsackie virus. Um, sounds fun. It's actually not as dirty as it sounds. Coxsackie is actually a town in New Jersey. Well, now it just sounds dirtier. <laughs> that is the name that was given to this virus because this was where the virus was first. I should say family of viruses was first found. The larger family is called enteroviruses because the original family was found in the enteric system or the gut. So these are viruses that we encounter all the time throughout childhood, throughout adulthood. These are the viruses. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Which cause a large number of colds and flu like illnesses. Um, a lot of them cause diarrheal illnesses, so vomiting and diarrhea. Of ear infections, right. so meningitis. It's a, it's a terribly uh, protean virus, meaning that it can cause a myriad of symptoms. But these winter colds and some of these summer colds that we get. Uh, a lot of them are due to enteroviruses, and from time to time, we get like sweeping epidemics of one family of these enteroviruses called Coxsackie. So Coxsackie B viruses will sweep through, and then Coxsackie A virus, hundreds of these viruses. There are so many different ones. But the investigators here kind of zeroed in on the family of viruses called Coxsackie B, created a, a vaccine against um, a viral capsid protein. They created this CVB1 vaccine, tested it in mice, and now hopefully we're moving forward to see if it's safe in human beings. So let's see. So far we've given mice... <laughs> Heavy menstrual periods yeah. and type 1 diabetes. Mice are the real yeah. heroes of the scientific world. Just <laughs> let's, let's take a moment to acknowledge the many, yeah, yeah. many sacrifices that Pizza Rat and Shower Rat <laughs> and all their brethren have contributed over true. the years. Yeah, so uh, this was a, uh, a trial in the... I love this uh, journal. It's called Diabetologia. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Sounds D- like it's made up. A-B-E-T, like diabetes. O-L-O-G-I-A, Diabetologia or Diabetologia. Sounds like a sugary booger. <laughs> Would you? I had to hawk a Diabetologia. So the, the vaccine was from Coxsackie virus B. Uh, the virus was taken and killed using formalin. And so this is a very common way of creating a virus. You just take uh, the, the field isolate of a virus, you propagate them. So you make lots and lots and lots of virus. You purify the virus and then you put it in formalin for a few days so that the virus can't replicate anymore. So you're left with all the proteins and the products of the virus um, that are antigenic, meaning the immune system likes to attack it, but the virus is not able to replicate anymore. Then you wash away all of, you know, pretty much all of the formalin. Wait, wait, tell them what you wash away the <laughs> what formalin with. you wash with? the formalin away with, Josh? Tween <laughs> 80 detergent. So it's a soap. It's essentially a soap. Not for young kids. Yeah. Not for... Yeah. Not, not for teens. Oh but for God. those right in the middle. It's tween. Yeah, this is... Tween is a series of detergents. You can use tween 100, tween 80, blah, 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 blah. And so you you wash away the... The uh, contaminants and everything else, you get pure viral uh, kind of virion, I guess you could call it, just the coat and whatever. Um, and then you take and you vaccinate your mice. So they, um, they gave three separate shots to their mice 
And then they challenged the mice with an infection, and then they looked for diabetes development and for the presence of the virus itself, of course, to see if the, the mice actually fought off the virus. So in the mice, not only did the vaccine create a strong neutralizing antibody, which protected against the virus itself, they actually got a lot fewer of their mice that were treated that developed diabetes. So pretty much they got half of the control mice developing diabetes and the vaccinated mice, seven out of seven, all of them were diabetes free. So they didn't lose any beta cells. They didn't have any pancreatic dis uh, destruction. So we just used a few mice. We used six in the control group and seven in the experimental group. But we got a difference of essentially 100%. Uh, half of the mice that didn't get the vaccine developed diabetes and none of the mice that got the vaccine developed diabetes. So now the next phase is going to be testing on adult humans to map out any complications and keep in mind that, you know, there's not, even though there's a solid evidence of a link, it is not a guarantee that anybody who gets Coxsackie virus will yeah, for sure fact, develop diabetes. So there's still going to be a degree of trial and error in figuring out who is the best population to receive this. But certainly it holds a lot of promise for the future in preventing what is certainly one of the biggest uh, medical conditions. Yeah, I would say, the, the problem in the world. with it is, you know, once you have type 1 diabetes, A, you have to treat the acute attack of diabetes at first. But the other problem is it is lifelong. The patient needs insulin, exogenous insulin for the rest of their lives. Um, they can live a normal life and a normal lifespan, but, you know, in a resource poor country, for instance, if you run out of insulin for that patient, I mean, they're done. There's no other therapy for it. So that means that when they get diabetes and they don't have any insulin around, that's a death sentence for that kid. So, yeah, it is a wonderful thing to be able to stop it before it ever starts, because you could potentially, with the right vaccine schedule for the, for the right child, stop them from ever having diabetes and thus obviating the need for insulin. You've taken away a lifelong disease. And that kind of brings us to our, our next story, which... Oh, gosh. Uh, it showed up on IFLS, which, as you know, we here at Chapel yeah, Medicine have that. a love-hate relationship <laughs> with. When it comes to keeping your blood sugar in check, people with diabetes have largely limited options. You know, <laughs> nobody likes that little prick. Back in 2014, Google announced it was working on a glucose monitoring contact lens, but that never really developed or came into anything. I don't know. Maybe they saw what happens with Google Glass and figured, let's just give up on <laughs> eyewear-based Google products. Now a team of Korean researchers think they may have a solution, which is a contact lens that would keep tabs on the glucose <laughs> in your sweet, right. sweet and, tears. Uh, the nice thing about this is, whether or not you guys know about this, you're making tears all the time. You make a baseline uh, amount of tears that I, I'm not trying to say like everybody's always... 
are you oh, all such no, sad no, I mean, You're all crying on the inside, you know, because of all. No, no, it's not that. You're always keeping your eye lubricated with a small baseline secretion of tears all the time. So even if those tears aren't overflowing because you're chopping an onion or you've got dust in your eye, you're still making some tears. So within those tears are not just water, but you have salts and you're going to have a tiny bit of sugar. Yeah, so material scientists Jihoon Park and colleagues at the Ulsan National Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea have prototyped and tested their device on no, not mice, uh, rabbits personal this time. experience, trying to do anything with a mouse eye is insanely difficult. Anyway, how does it work? So the lens they created has a tiny and ultra-slim microchip that is embedded in one of the thin concave sides. And through an equally tiny antenna, it will send data about the amount of glucose from the user's tears to his or her paired (laughs) smartphone, because of course it does. And initially... Developers were also considering adding LED lighting that could help warn users when their glucose levels drop below certain thresholds, meaning the LED light would always be on, uh, not to obstruct your vision, but if your glucose drops too low, then the light would go off. Now, of course, this would require you to look into a mirror to see it, uh, but this concept does work even though glucose levels in tears are about five to ten times less concentrated than blood (laughs) glucose levels. So I'm going to stop myself right here and tell you two big problems uh, before we get on to the solution. So the first is they (laughs) opted ultimately not to go with this LED system, Partially because there is an arsenic component of a LED that may or may not prove dangerous to have in your eyeball. The biggest problem with this, and the reason it's probably not going to pan out, is that glucose levels in tears still don't really correlate with glucose levels in blood. You could potentially have just like a threshold where you sense a lot less glucose in the tears. But the problem is that may happen because, you know, the glucose transporters or, or, or glucose movement into the tears is less for, you know, chemical reason, but the glucose in your blood is just fine. Or the glucose in your blood may dip and the glucose level in your tears won't dip until like a lot later. And then you have to be looking in a mirror when you see (laughs) that little light go off. It is not the easy needle-free answer that we were hoping for. Um, And also, I want to know how they were making rabbits cry, because (laughs) just like you were imagining scientists in kilts, I'm thinking of rabbits crying sweet, sweet candy tears. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> didn't Prince write that song? No. No, that was no, Doves. We've, no. we've largely left them out of the scientific usually. testing process. <laughs> Maybe we're just like our fathers, Santosh, too bold. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean that this technology won't have a lot of applications, most of them largely related to entertainment and augmented reality. But successfully detecting your accurate blood sugar levels just from wearing a contact lens is probably still outside right. um, I, I the realm of the real. A lot more precise uh, with something like sugar monitoring in tears before we can use it. However, 
Um, you know, Josh, there are other chemicals that are secreted in tears. And so this may be useful for other conditions. So maybe not sensing glucose, but perhaps something like detecting salts. So stay tuned because if you can detect, you know, one type of molecule in something like tears with a contact lens, it's possible to change like the conductive system, whatever they're using to detect other stuff. I still think this technology is just wicked cool. And I, I hope they stay on it, even if it's not ready for prime time yet. Just because it's not likely to work for the original intent does not mean that trial and error will not give us a wholly mm. different application of this technology. Moving on to our last and final journal club story, a famous Shakespearean study, and that is, of that course, is the TB or not TB. Whether tis nobler to undergo a skin test or... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So tuberculosis. All right. Um, one of the greatest killers worldwide, especially for vulnerable individuals, those with HIV/AIDS, little children, elderly people, um, extremely vulnerable populations, especially those in poor tropical countries like Sub-Saharan Africa. So tuberculosis is all over the place. Um, the number one problem with tuberculosis is that uh, it's Early signs and symptoms, you want to catch it as early as possible. It is very difficult right now to screen for this. Um, people are developing blood tests. Um, and in fact, we have uh, quite a few blood tests that are out on the market right now. But their so-called sensitivity and specificity are not entirely optimal um, because we're not really looking for the bacteria itself. We're looking for kind of an immune response saying that you have encountered the bacteria before. Uh, and we use that as a surrogate of saying, oh, you have TB right now unless you've been treated. The old school method was to put a little bit of protein, PPD, purified protein derivative. Now we use tuberculin under the skin. Um, so we'd put it in subdermal and then you'd look for a T cell reaction, which would look like a little rash. We call it a wheel and a flare, um, a circular bump with redness that would show up if the immune cells recognized that protein and started to attack it. So that gave us as doctors a signal that, oh, you've encountered TB before. Your body recognizes TB. Well, the problem with this is uh, all you can say is you've had TB before. Well, the blood test was kind of the same thing, we're, but we're still not looking for the presence of the actual bacteria. Well, now our, our friends at George Mason University have come up with a urine test. <laughs> so... Now, the big thing is that most of the current tests, whether it's blood, sputum, or right. even skin, take days to give results and really require specialized yeah, the, the blood test, uh, health professionals to, to interpret have, them. You know, baseline materials available and T cells and all this other stuff. You have to gather it just right. And the skin test, you have to place. You have to wait two to three days, and then you have to read it with your hands and with your eyes. So you can't just mail in 
the blood test. You have to come back to get it read. Instead, this urine test gives results <laughs> in 12 hours, which is yeah, light speed and for infectious disease testing. Is it's actually looking for a component of the actual tuberculosis cell wall. You're you're kind of looking for the presence of part of the bacteria instead of just monitoring an immune response to like a derived protein. Um, so this is a more direct exam and it is a urine test rather than a blood test or a skin test. So you can collect it really, really easily. Um, and it's a shorter test. So this has all the makings of like awesomeness. Now the test uses <laughs> tiny molecular cages, like little octagons embedded with a special dye that can catch and trap these sugar molecules. Welcome to the uh, octagon. Almost like a tuberculosis royal rumble. Two tuberculosis sugar Sorry, enter. Only one leaves. <laughs> Actually. And because it traps these sugar molecules from the cell wall, it makes the test capable of detecting TB at very low concentrations, which means it's a thousand times more accurate than some of the previous methods that have been developed. And when the team did their, you know, preliminary proof of concept test, they correctly identified Yay. 48 people. Yes. These are people who had microbiologically confirmed tuberculosis. Uh, they had 48% of those, meaning that they had like spit into a cup or something like that. And someone had actually looked at the sputum and found bacteria. 14 disease TB negative patients. They had infection, but they didn't have any bacilli in their spit and 39 healthy volunteers. Their positive predictive value here was about 0.82, so like 82%. Their negative predictive value was 0.95. In this case, closer to number one than closer to zero was great. So they did have one false positive, but that person who had the false positive, guess what they had? A urinary tract infection. They were looking for sugars Hi, that were shed by bacteria. And, you know, you had bacteria in the urine. More than likely what happened was um, they had contaminants in there that didn't make the sample usable for this. So, you know, there's a lot of trial, a little bit of error, but a great deal of progress. And that wraps up our last journal story of the week for trial and error. Now, it's been a while since we've had a chance to do a proper uh, just the tip, especially after I unmercifully oh, harassed Santosh <laughs> yeah, in our previous episode. This time you're actually going to, you know, you're, you're going to give the people someplace nice to go when they're out and about. Yeah, so I have been playing an absolute truckload of the newest edition of Assassin's Creed, which takes you oh, is, this time to this one, ancient Egypt. Wait, wait, is this the uh, one where you explore ancient Egypt like you're on a, you know, like a, a museum or a live tour on your PlayStation? Yep, you can go tomb robbing. Oh, that's awesome. Several of these tombs do have booby yeah. traps, you know, like snakes. And uh, that can prove a little bit discouraging to your character. But I bring it up because, as those of you who listen to the show with any regularity well know, uh, one of my favorite historical periods to cover is, <laughs> of course, ancient Egypt. This game was pretty much tailor-made for me, so thanks, Ubisoft. The game gives you the opportunity to explore inside the pyramids at Giza, which 
the game includes a secret chamber in the Grand Pyramid, which they fill with treasure and was done based on a hypothesis by the game developers that uh, Mm -hmm. the only way to successfully build this would be to have an inner chamber to drag the stones up from the inside. Um, (laughs) Well, the game was developed two years before an actual chamber confirming their findings uh, was discovered in Egypt only last year. Coming in to actually map a void in the Great Pyramid at Giza? I thought that was super cool. But of course, if you go to Egypt, you're absolutely going to see the pyramid. It's, It's one of the major things to do. One of the things that people might skip, though, is the Valley of the Kings. And... You know, you may or may not have a chance to visit it. There's the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and the Valley of the Nobles. And all of these are largely just desert. It's The valley itself stands on the west bank of the Nile, opposite the modern-day Luxor, not the casino in Vegas, the actual site. And for over 500 years between 16th to 11th centuries B.C., the Valley of the Kings served as the final resting place for the rulers of ancient Egypt, largely because one guy thought, hey, maybe if I stick my tomb out in the middle of a hot, abandoned desert with nothing else surrounding it, people won't come in and rob my grave. And other kings after him thought, that's a great idea. I'm going to hide my tomb there too until it became, well, a lot like the parking lot at said Vegas casino. All of these were purposely built in the middle of the desert to deter thieves, and uh, most of the graves were robbed in ancient times, so didn't quite work out. But the tombs that remain still offer very important clues to the past, but not every tomb was robbed, and they're still discovering new ones in what looks just like, again, a bunch of cliffs with holes in them. And this is where Howard Carter first discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. Every single day, a few of the tombs are open to visitors, and they change up which ones so no tomb gets kind of too much foot traffic and destroyed, because these are still ongoing archaeological sites. And everyone can follow a sort of similar trail around accessible parts of the valley. Next to each tomb, whether or not it's open for the day, is a sign with the name of the ruler who once rested below. And it's some of the most famous names in Egyptian history. You have Ptolemies, you have Tutmoses, and of course you have... Tutankhamun. Now, one of the things you should know is that uh, photos are not allowed anywhere in the valley, not in the tombs, anything except the very outside of the tomb. And that's to stop people from taking phones and cameras down into the tombs themselves where flashes could destroy the very delicate paint. That was uh, Mm. performed in there over the years actually caused the paintings to fade. So, you know, they don't want the same thing happening inside of these really, really ancient tableaus inside of the pyramids. And although most of the riches and treasure have long since disappeared, the hieroglyphics and really impressive paint is still there demonstrating, you know, all the power enjoyed by the pharaohs. And believe it or not, these tombs have been tourist sites for millennia. Before they were rediscovered by us, the ancient Romans and Greeks visited, just as we do today. And how do I know this? Because there is ancient Greek and Roman graffiti inscribed on the walls of some of the tombs. What I can only imagine says things like, you know, Hercules was here. In addition to the three tombs that are included in the admission price to the (laughs) valley, you can pay a small extra fee to visit King Tut's tomb. And why wouldn't you? Interestingly enough, you can still see actual King Tut 
in his tomb, the remains of the pharaoh himself. That's because Howard Carter was kind of a shitty archaeologist, and the damage he inflicted on the mummy when he discovered the tomb, as well as, yeah, you know, was, look uh, over his Indiana discovery, Jones means that the body can't Indiana be removed Jones. at all, or it would be destroyed beyond all recognition. <laughs> so it's, it's a little sad to think about, but it does mean that you actually get to see the mummy in his tomb as it was originally designed, instead of what we normally see, which is a very carefully curated experience by local museums. And if you want to see that, you know, what the tombs looked like with all the treasures that were not robbed, uh, you can go to the Cairo Museum. So definitely do it, but take water, take a hat, wear sunscreen, because it gets, and this is before global warming was a huge issue, it can get up to like the 120s, 130s, or for those of you who prefer Celsius, up into the high 40s when you're out there. And that's just on a standard day, and there is no protection at all. So uh, careful not to suffer from heat stroke and be buried in the <laughs> desert yourself. Almost as hot as like Phoenix, Arizona. That brings us to the end of this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. We now have a spin-off show, Space 3D, hosted by our good friend, Eleanor O'Rangers with two of her colleagues all about the goings-on in space, often related to medicine, but not always. So tune in. That comes out every other Sunday on this station and very soon will be launching their own channel individually. Uh, If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as sources for some of our stories. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.